Thank you very much, John, for that extraordinarily warm welcome, and thank you to the Rothermere American Institute for welcoming me back here. Uh, I was actually one of the speakers at the inaugural conference of the Rothermere Institute in 2001, I believe it was, and I've not actually been back in the building since then. Uh, uh, marvelous to see how well the building has weathered, as people have expressed it to me, but also marvelous to see how much uh, uh, energetic activity is taking place here and how the intellectual heart of American studies in Britain and indeed for a large part of this side of the Atlantic has moved to uh, this very building. So it's uh, a great honor and a particular pleasure, therefore, to be delivering this year's Sir John Eliot Lecture in Atlantic History here at the Rothermere American Institute. Uh, I was never formally a student of John Eliot's, but his influence as a scholar, as a mentor, and as a friend over many years, uh, have marked my life and work more deeply than that of almost any other historian. Indeed, it's only a slight exaggeration to say that John made me an historian, and it's certainly no stretch to say that he made me an Atlanticist. More than 25 years ago, as John has already briefly mentioned, I was wandering in the academic wilderness, engaged in doctoral work in English literature, but ever more convinced that I needed to shift my focus and my allegiance to history. My thesis topic had mutated by a devious route from Shakespeare's debts to Ovid to the impact of the discovery of America on Renaissance literature. Uh, soon after that switch, I discovered John's Wiles lectures on the old world and the new, 1492 to 1650. After reading that book, I learned never again to speak of impact, but also much more importantly, I discovered how an ambitious historical argument touching vast expanses of space over a long period of time could be constructed with economy, grace, and lasting weight. Ever since that encounter with John's work and with John himself, I've always taken his elegant prose and his clarity of mind as the models to which I aspire as an historian. And indeed, his works are still the exemplars to which I direct my own students in whatever field uh, for the very best of historical writing combined with that enormous clarity of thinking and breadth of vision. In this evening's lecture, I want to take up two themes of great importance in John's work, especially in his most recent work, and to put them into conversation with my own thinking about ideas of civil war from ancient Rome to the present. The first of those ideas from John's work is the history of comparison and connection, particularly in an Atlantic framework, but also in the context of the hemispheric history of the Americas. The second theme is the conjoined history of political and social upheaval in the late 18th and early 19th centuries known to historians and contemporaries alike as the Age of Revolutions, the subject, of course, of the last third of John's empires of the Atlantic world. By putting those two themes together, I hope to shed some light at least on the question of how to think about that first Age of Revolutions in its own terms and I hope also to illuminate some of our own confusions about civil war and revolution in what some have seen as a new age of revolution. This is a recent cover from the New Republic uh, in uh, the United States. To sharpen my theme, let me take two brief examples to illustrate what might be at stake in comparing and connecting revolutions and civil wars in the past and in our own time. The first comes from John's Empires of the Atlantic World, where he crisply anatomizes the play of forces during the crisis of the British Atlantic world in the 1770s. As he rightly notes there, quotes, the 13 colonies failed to carry with them significant portions of Britain's Atlantic empire. 
Indeed, a numerical majority of Britain's Atlantic possessions did not revolt. Uh, there were more than, uh, more than 26 colonies, depending how you count them. Only 13, of course, revolted in the end. And, as John continued, they also failed to carry a substantial section of their own populations, as perhaps as many as 50,000 in a white population of 2.2 million remained loyal to the British crown. That estimate might now indeed seem a little bit low. 60,000 is probably the best current assessment of the white loyalist diaspora from the infant United States, accompanied, of course, by at least 15,000 of their enslaved people. This then, John concludes in this section of his work, was a civil war as much as a revolution. As we'll see later, that insight, not just about the American Revolution, but regarding other revolutionary movements of the late 18th and early 19th centuries, that a revolution could be and was indeed a civil war at the same time as it was a revolution, foreshadowed an emergent shift in the historiography of the age of revolutions, a shift to see it, as my title suggests, as also, and perhaps even centrally, an age of civil wars. By putting the American, French, and Spanish-American revolutions into this frame, and I think this could be extended to the Haitian Revolution as well, very obviously, I believe we can affirm John's repeated insistence that, quotes, a comparative perspective might help to broaden historical horizons, not least in the history of the Americas, by suggesting new questions and stimulating new thinking. The element of comparison I want to suggest, uh, expanding very slightly on on, uh, John's practice, can be temporal as well as spatial. That by comparing different times or periods as well as distinct places, we can illuminate continuity and change in ways that are beneficial for our understanding of the present as well as of the past. My second example comes indeed from the present, from a more recent headline, in fact from a story that The Guardian ran about six months ago in November 2013, in which an exiled Syrian businessman living just across the border from Syria in Turkey lamented that the high ideals of the uprising against President Bashar al-Assad, freedom, Islam, social equality of some sort, as the Guardian report put it, uh, uh, ventriloquizing him, had been replaced by sectarian violence and by fighting between militias, jihadis and foreigners. This is not a revolution against a regime anymore, he said. This is a civil war. That value-laden opposition between a revolution driven by high ideals and transformative hopes and a civil war fueled by base motives and confusing violence goes back a long way, at least to the uh, roots of our modern conceptions of revolution, which began to emerge in the era of the Atlantic revolutions themselves. It was then we might uh, see the separation of the two concepts, but also during that period they remained overlapping, and therefore fruitful as means to analyse the confused experiences of contemporaries as both uh, taking part in revolutions and seeing themselves as uh, heirs to a long tradition of civil wars, as I'll show in a moment. On the face of it, there still seem to be compelling reasons to keep revolutions and civil wars apart, conceptually as well as academically. Civil wars have generally been assumed to be sterile, bringing only misery and disaster, as here uh, some graves from the Balkan Wars while revolutions have often been seen as fertile with innovation and transformative possibilities. Likewise, we might believe that civil wars are local and time-bound, taking place within particular, usually national communities, with little overspill and no impact on opening up the future. By contrast, we might believe that revolutions occurred across the world, at least across the modern world, often defined as modern along a very timeline of revolutions in an unfolding sequence of human liberation. 
as Hannah Arendt noted in 1963, revolutions, properly speaking, did not exist prior to the modern age. They are among the most recent all-political data, in contrast to wars, including civil wars, which she argued, or perhaps asserted, were among the oldest phenomena of the recorded past. Civil wars, this conventional understanding might imply, reveal the blighting of the human spirit. Revolutions, its revelation and self-realization. Yet these competing conceptions have their own histories. I think they should not be projected back onto the past as natural facts and should be understood instead as ideological constructions, as, for instance, uh, Arendt's opposition in the, in, the, uh, uh, in the Cold War obviously was. And, as we shall see, self-conscious revolutionaries, at least from Thomas Paine uh, up to Lenin and Stalin, were well aware that the scripts of civil war and revolution had much in common and were very difficult indeed to disentangle. There were nonetheless deep historical reasons for these different understandings of revolution and civil war. The two forms of violent, forcible political transformation are usually assumed to be distinct both in their form and in their origins. According to the towering German, of, uh, German historian of political concepts, Reinhard Kasselleck, revolution occurred across the course of the 18th century, quotes, as a con- concept in contrast to that of civil war. At the beginning of that century, he argued, the two expressions were not interchangeable, but were not at the same time mutually exclusive. Civil war raised memories of destructive confessional conflict across Europe, the very kinds of events in the past that proponents of enlightenment hope to prevent in the future. By contrast, revolution would be the leading edge of positive transformation across all domains of human activity, education, morality, law, politics, and religion. Here I'm still ventriloquizing Caselic's view. The irrational, atavistic, and destructive activity of civil war would wither away and gradually become impossible. A practical desire to expunge civil war thus gave way, allegedly, to a positive program for promoting revolution. Kasselek concluded that the result was the final separation of the two concepts by the time of the late 18th century. In many respects, he argued, civil war had now acquired the meaning of a senseless circling upon itself, with respect to which revolution sought to open up a new vista, a new temporality of possibility. The consequences of that separation still remain with us today, even if we might disagree, as I will disagree, about uh, the the, the point at which that separation, conceptual separation, took place. As I've just implied, to accept Kinselic's narrative at face value might be too hasty. As I hope to show briefly, contemporaries were not as clear as later historians would be that the two concepts of civil war and revolution could be distinguished so starkly from each other. Their belief should lead us to see civil war and revolution as indeed overlapping, not mutually exclusive historical categories. That way we can avoid at least taking the winner's view, in which what in other circumstances or by other ideologues, uh, what were termed rebellions, insurrections or civil wars came to be called revolutions. Indeed, we might say that one sure sign of a revolution's success at least from the point of view of the revolutionaries, self-styled, is precisely that retrospective redescription. Such renaming can happen relatively quickly. For example, the transatlantic conflict of the 1770s that many contemporaries saw as a civil war, a British civil war, or even the American civil war, was first called the American Revolution in September 1776 by the Chief Justice of South Carolina, William Henry Drayton. The brew branding can also come more slowly, 
as when the French historian and politician François Guizot became the first, I think, in 1826 to call the mid-17th century crisis, we now generally call the British Civil Wars, the English Revolution, on the grounds, as he put it, that the analogy of the two revolutions, the French and the English, uh, was such that the English Revolution would never have been understood to have been such had not the French taken place. The 16th century English poet Sir John Harrington famously wrote, of course, that treason doth never prosper. What's the reason? For if it prosper, none dare call it treason. We might adapt that for our own purposes this evening and say, civil war doth never prosper. What's the solution? For if it prosper, we call it revolution. I'd now like to go back behind such mystifications, indeed quite a way back behind them for a moment, to see how contemporaries in the late 18th and early 19th centuries might have understood the political, the, uh, political and social upheavals in the Atlantic world in the perspective of a very long durée, an almost 2,000-year long durée. In particular, I want to argue briefly for the interpenetration of the categories of civil war and revolution in light of some widespread narratives of transformative political change that endured deep into our period. We're now quite accustomed to a narrative of unfolding political modernity in which revolutions form a scarlet thread, often beginning with the French Revolution and heading forward via Mexico, China and Russia, and then to more recent revolutions in, say, Cuba or Iran. That sequence of revolutions laid out by successive revolutionaries demanded a search for antecedents. Luther donning the mask of the Apostle Paul, the revolution of 1789 uh, draping itself as the Roman Republic and then later as the uh, Roman Empire, and the revolution of 1848 knowing nothing better than to parody 1789 and the revolutionary tradition of 1793 to 1795, as Marx classically put it, about this imitative formation of antecedents to, uh, uh, to give uh, a revolutionary genealogy, a heritage and a foundation. No such revolutionary narratives were, of course, to hand for contemporaries in the 17th or 18th centuries. What they had instead was a script of political change told as a series of civil wars derived originally from the historians, poets, and orators of ancient Rome. The Romans were the first to experience political violence and internal discords as civil wars. Such conflicts were civil in the sense that they were fought between fellow citizens, or kives, within the bounds of a single political community. At least since Cicero himself had been the first, at least the first recorded uh, author, to use the term bellum kivile in 66 BCE, the Romans identified a disturbing and increasing number of their own conflicts as fought not against foreigners, allies, pirates or slaves, for instance, but rather as wars by the people of Rome against the people of Rome. Over the course of almost a century, from Sulla's march on Rome to the succession disputes following the death of the Emperor Nero, Rome would be racked by a series of those citizens' wars, Bella Cavilia. Civil wars increasingly came to appear sequential and cumulative across the course of Roman history, indeed formed a curse on Roman history itself. It became increasingly easy to believe that Rome was doomed to successive and unending civil wars, uh, and that it would reiterate citizens' conflicts cumulatively and un unceasingly in a deadly and debilitating series. Although civil wars were battles for control of the city itself, they could not easily be distinguished from foreign wars because they spilled over to arenas throughout the Roman world and drew in actors from across the empire. The wider Rome expanded its citizenship, the broader the ambit of civil war became. And the longer the historical perspective on Roman history, the more cursedly inescapable did those civil wars appear. 
They came not singly, but in battalions, and left wounds that would not heal, heirs who demanded vengeance, and divisions that split first the city itself, and then the entire Roman Empire in the Mediterranean and beyond. This was a sequence that looked like it might become a cycle, a repetitious but destructive series of events that closely tracked and decisively informed the pivotal moments in Roman politics. Now, of making books about these civil wars, there would be no end, and of the circulation of the books from the Roman civil wars, similarly, there would be no end deep into the late 18th and early 19th centuries. Uh, the greatest surviving treatments of Roman civil wars uh, were those of uh, Lucan, Tacitus, Plutarch, Florus, uh, Appian, uh, and Tacitus, among, among others, telling Roman history as a sequence of civil wars uh, across decades and then, indeed, increasingly across centuries. Their accounts formed the matter of Rome's civil wars into sequences both genealogical and teleological that probed Romans' moral failings, diagnosed civil wars as the city's seemingly unshakable curse, and also prescribed remedies for the disease or condemned its victims. And this provided uh, a script for uh, political change and a script for cumulative uh, uh, political transformations that would be deeply enduring at least until the late 18th century. These enduring narratives of Roman civil war took three broad forms, each of which would inform later understandings of internal violence and therefore also of revolution in the Latin West and uh, its heirs, and help variously to inspire both revolutionary ideologies and counter-revolutionary ideologues. First, there was what might be called the Republican narrative of seemingly endless and repeated civil wars arising from the very fabric of Roman civilization itself, To be civilized at all was to be prone to civil war, and to suffer one civil war opened the way for further destructive dissensions within the Commonwealth. As the late 18th century aristocratic English Republican Algernon Sidney put it, "'Tis in vain to seek a government in all points free from a possibility of civil wars, tumults and seditions. That is a blessing denied to this life and reserved to complete the felicity of the next." Second, there was a parallel imperial or Augustan narrative following much the same pattern, but holding that the only cure for the pathology of civil war would be the restoration of monarchy or the exaltation of an emperor. In this way, wrote Appian, the Roman polity survived all kinds of civil disturbances to reach unity and monarchy. An evident demonstration, agreed his late 16th century English translator, that people's rule must give place and princes' power prevail. And finally, there was a Christian narrative, constructed most famously by Augustine, which presented Rome's pagan history as a catalogue of those evils which were more infernal because internal, the pun is there in the Latin as well, a series of civil or rather uncivil discords. The contrast, of course, with that peaceable civitas, the city of God, could hardly have been greater. The lesson of all three narratives was chillingly paradoxical. To be civilised at all was indeed to be prone to civil war. To inhabit a civitas was to be in danger and indeed a likelihood of suffering not just tumults and seditions but full-blown civil war, as had Rome repeatedly across its own history. Only by falling prey to the disease of civil war was it often possible to discern the boundaries of political community itself, and this will be important as we reach the age of revolutions and civil wars. Uh, And as the boundaries of Rome itself expanded from the city to the entire peninsula and then outward uh, into the eastern Mediterranean, so the realm within which civil war could take place expanded as well. A final corollary of these Roman narratives was exclusionary for another reason, an important one for the history of the New World. 
If to be civilized in the sense of city dwelling inevitably risks civil war, then only the civilized themselves had civil wars, while the less civilized or barbarians could never ascend to that form of conflict. The European inheritors of Rome's traditions would see their own internal troubles as the culmination or the repetition of a sequence of similar wars that followed the pattern of the Roman civil wars and that played out across Europe since the fall of the Roman Empire. There was plentiful evidence for this series uh, also uh, taking place in recognisably Roman colours beyond Europe. For example, as the late Sabina McCormack showed in her magnificent last book, in the 1530s and early 1540s, the Spanish conquerors of Peru, led by the two fast friends who had turned bitter enemies, Francisco Pizarro and Diego de Almagro, fought a series of wars along with their families and followers for the spoils of con- conquest. In the following decades, a series of Spanish historians each narrated their struggles uh, uh, between their armies and their indigenous allies with categories and language drawn from Sallust, Plutarch, Livy and Lucan. Oviedo described this war worse than civil war and no less hellish, while uh, Pedro Cieza de Leon mordantly noted, quotes, that the wars that are most feared and that are fought with the greatest cruelty are civil wars. Writing a few decades later in the early 17th century, the Inca Garcilaso de la Vega likewise described the civil wars that took place between the Pizarros and the Almagros in the second volume of uh, his indigenous chronicle of Peruvian history. Europeans had evidently brought their civil wars to a wider world, the world of the Americas, as a distinguishing mark of their civilization. Synoptic and serial accounts of Rome's civil wars inspired a genre of European historical writing in the late 17th and 18th centuries that presented the histories of particular nations or peoples as narratives of their, quote, revolutions, meaning, in fact, their external invasions, succession disputes, and civil wars. Historians in this period, such as the Englishman Lawrence Eachard in the Roman history from the building of the city to the perfect settlement of the empire by Augustus Caesar, first published in 1695 and then a great many other editions in the 18th century, and on the other side of uh, the English Channel, the Abbe René uh, Aubert de Verteau in his Histoire des Révolutions arrivées dans le gouvernement de la République romaine, 1719, and again multiple later editions, represented a sequence of disruptive revolutions by which Rome had moved from over the centuries from monarchy to empire via republic. Verteau himself later capitalized on the success of his Roman revolutionary histories with sequels on the histories of revolutions in Portugal and Sweden, and his imitators anatomized revolutions throughout European history and in the wider Eurasian world. Throughout the lifespan of this genre, a largely absolutist genre, uh, hymning the, um, uh, the, 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 the virtues of stability through monarchy, civil wars were included among the roster of revolutions, and revolutions could not be distinguished conceptually from civil wars. Revolutions likewise became the standard European description for violent upheavals in Asia, such as, for instance, the fall of the Ming Dynasty in China in 1644. Only towards the end of the 18th century did Europeans cease to call these Asian struggles revolutions, interestingly, as they reserved that term for their own political transformations in an epoch seen by contemporaries and successors alike as an age of revolutions, an age which also uh, was broadly described at the time in the Roman language of civil war, and it's to that transition that I'll turn now, also turning to the Americas. The history of Rome's civil wars... The intervening histories of civil wars, always in the plural, in late medieval and early modern Europe, and the genre of the history of revolutions, 
provided the palimpsest over which the revolutionary scripts of the late 18th and early 19th centuries would be written. The historical narrative of civil war helped contemporaries to understand their conflicts as open-ended and potentially endless cycles of contestation over the location of authority, the distribution or redistribution of sovereignty, and indeed over the boundaries of political community itself, within which they discovered their common citizenship, even at the point of its breakdown into war. For the same reasons, thinking of what we now in retrospect term revolutions as civil wars can also help us as historians in the present to restore contingency to these conflicts around the Atlantic world and indeed throughout the Americas. In this light, they appear not as teleological triumphs over tradition or as the expression, expression of latent national identities seeking, seeking an outlet for imperial oppression, as often nationalist narratives uh, told them to be. They appear more violent also than those nationalist mythologies, especially in the United States, have sometimes portrayed them as being. And they also become more comparable to each other as a sequence of dissolutions of government, destructive struggles for settlement, and long-simmering battlefields populated by defeated enemies as well as by victorious revolutionaries throughout the Americas. Now, as we now are becoming increasingly aware, independence in the sense of autonomy from interference by outside powers was only one solution among many to imperial crises in the Atlantic world of the late 18th and early 19th centuries. As recent scholars have been showing in great detail, in most cases, both in uh, uh, British America, but especially in Iberian America, independence was not the first, but in fact often the last option embraced by Americans North and South in their struggles for sovereignty and its reorganization. The hemisphere's multiple transitions from empire to state, and in some cases indeed from one empire to another, were never smooth or uncontested, in part because the legal and political sources of sovereignty were eclectic and plural. Sovereignty, in this sense, was less a source of jurisdictional certainty than a site of ferocious contestation. Discussion of sovereignty and its locations raged incessantly in the empires and colonies of the Atlantic world, at least from the 1760s onwards, so much so that, by Be that Benjamin Franklin exclaimed in 1770, I'm quite sick of this discussion of our sovereignty. What Jeremy Edelman has recently written in regard to Iberian America in the early 19th century could apply just as well to the British Atlantic Empire of the mid-1770s. And here I quote Jeremy, it was not so much separation from empire that was at stake, but how to reconstitute it on new foundations, even by giving it a new centre or multiple centres. Indeed, the recent literature on Iberian, the Iberian-American Atlantic crisis by authors such as Jaime Rodriguez, uh, Javier-Francois Guerra, Chema Portillo and others might, in fact, provide the best guide to a new vision of the first Atlantic crisis in the British Empire two generations earlier. However, as John Eliot has remarked in another context about the historiographies of North and South America, each world seems to exist in a self-contained compartment with little or no reference to what was happening simultaneously in the other. If only not more North Americanists read Spanish or Spanish uh, uh, language historiography, I think we might indeed have a new paradigm for understanding the American Revolution, as well as a new means to integrate the, historic, the hemispheric histories in Atlantic context of the Americas in the late 18th and early 19th centuries by taking some of the paradigms from uh, this new Spanish language literature back into the consideration of the American Revolution as the first Atlantic crisis. Now, in this context, empires, not states, were the communities within which civil wars were fought in this alleged age of revolutions. 
As in the case of Rome, it was often at the moment of internal fragmentation and collapse that the boundaries of community and the contested bonds of fraternity could become most painfully evident. Civil war was not in fact the first analogy that came to mind uh, during the course of the British imperial crisis of the 1760s and 1770s. In this case, again reaching back into Roman history, an early parallel was the social war, the Roman social war, which had concerned metropolitan relations and the rights of allies to recognition of their full citizenship. In 1776, for example, the agent for Massachusetts, the Massachusetts Bay Colony in London, William Bolan, charged that British ministers, quote, seem to delight in blood and are solicitous to introduce a social war, whereby after so narrowly escaping the sword of our enemies, we should employ our own swords in destroying ourselves. And Bolan's accusation came with a warning from Roman history. Rome, when in her flourishing estate, was brought to the brink of ruin by the social war, occasioned by her refusal to communicate the Roman rite. Could the same fate face Britain if it too failed to extend the full range of its rights to its allies within the empire? Adam Smith, for one, writing in The Wealth of Nations, hoped that it would not come to that for Britain, and suggested indeed that the British uh, uh, government, the British ministry, should offer a gracious Roman solution to this neo-Roman problem by granting rights of parliamentary representation, quotes, to each colony, which should detach itself from the general confederacy in return for freedom of trade for the metropole, but also the uh, uh, submission to equal taxation. By the time the wealth of nations appeared in 1776, Smith's proposed Romanoid solution to the British Atlantic crisis was no longer viable if it ever had been. But the conflict was already now being uh, viewed more broadly as a civil war. Uh, I've uh, given you here um, a rather murky uh, map of uh, New England uh, from 1775, uh, and in the very bottom, uh, just here, uh, we have uh, this, this map of the seat of civil war in America. It's not very clear to see, but the map of civil war in America is actually where I live now. Uh, as early as 1775, contemporaries were calling the conflict, in fact, the American Civil War, as, for example, did the Newport Mercury in Rhode Island in April of that year, when it noted the change that had taken place in the conflict. Through the sanguinary measures of a wicked ministry and the readiness of a standing army to execute their mandates has commenced the American Civil War, which will hereafter fill an important page in history. A few weeks later, in July 1775, the Continental Congress issued the first of its two major declarations, in this case a declaration setting forth the causes and necessity of taking up arms, drafted by Thomas Jefferson, in which its members justified their move to armed resistance and tried to reassure, quotes, the minds of our friends and fellow subjects in any part of the empire that we mean not to dissolve that union which has so long and so happily subsisted between us and which we sincerely wish to see restored. Their stated aim, indeed, was reconciliation on reasonable terms, thereby to relieve the empire from the calamities of civil war. The declaration, of course, accompanied the Olive Branch petition to George III, but both arrived in Britain after the king had declared the rebellious colonists to be outside his protection and hence outlaws within the boundaries of the British Atlantic Empire. Within just a few months, Thomas Paine made perhaps the most incendiary use of the Roman narrative of civil war during the British Atlantic crisis in common sense. Writing in Philadelphia in January 1776, Paine sought to shake his colonial American readers out of their complacent British monarchism by linking a plea for Republican government with his larger argument in favour of independence from Great Britain. 
He contrasted his own attachment to anti-monarchical republicanism with what he called, quotes, the most plausible plea which hath ever been offered in favour of hereditary succession. That is, and here he was engaging in a dialogue both with Algin and Sidney and behind Sidney, uh, Sir Robert Filmer, uh, the argument in favour of hereditary succession was, quotes, that it preserves a nation from civil wars. And were this true, it would indeed be weighty, whereas it is the most barefaced falsity ever imposed upon mankind. The whole history of England disowns the, facts he, the fact, he went on. Thirty kings and two minors have reigned in that distracted kingdom since the conquest, in which time there have been, including the Glorious Revolution, no less than eight civil wars and 19 rebellions. Whereof inst- wherefore, instead of making for peace, hereditary secession makes against it and destroys the very foundation it seems to stand on. In short, monarchy and succession have laid not this or that kingdom only, but the world in blood and ashes. Interesting that he included the Glorious Revolution of 1688-89 here as uh, one of the eight uh, English civil wars. Perhaps he thought then of the American Revolution as the ninth civil war, uh, at least among uh, English-speaking peoples. But he was not alone, of course, in identifying the Glorious Revolution in particular as a civil war. Writing almost 15 years after him, in reflections on the revolution in France, Edmund Burke had noted acidly that the ceremony of cashiering kings can rarely, if ever, be performed without force. It then becomes a case of war and not of constitution. Laws are commanded to hold their tongues against arms, and tribunals fall to the ground with the peace they're no longer able to uphold. The revolution of 1688 was obtained by a just war, in the only case in which any war, and much more a civil war, can be just. We might wonder at this point why these events constituted a civil war for Burke. Perhaps he was thinking as an Irishman rather than an English politician, recalling the conflict between James II and William III on his native soil. Or he may have remembered the English side of the revolution as an invasion by one claimant to the thrones of the three kingdoms, backed by force and and against his English supporters on another. Either way, he was making an essentially Lockean argument for the exceptionality of what had happened in 1688, in this case not actually its repeatability, uh, therefore different from Paine. Dethroning a monarch could not be regulated by law or determined by right. It was a question of armed necessity and hence of war. And because it was fought between members of the same polity, it was by definition for Burke civil. Paine's suggested cure for civil war would not be, as it had been for pro-Augustan, pro-imperial writers, and indeed as it would be for Burke, the re-imposition of monarchy. It was instead popular government rather than hereditary succession. Paine's argument for non-monarchical republicanism was, of course, inseparable from his justification for American independence. And that, too, turned on the question of whether the conflict should be viewed as internal to the British Empire or as a war between states in the international realm. In order to become legitimate belligerents outside the empire, rather than rebels within it, he argued the colonists had to transform themselves into bodies recognisable within the uh, prevailing norms of the law of nature and nations, and indeed the customs of courts, as he called it. Only then could they declare war and enter into agreements with other independent sovereign states. This would soon lead uh, uh, to an argument for a declaration of independence, most notably the primal example of the genre issued by the Continental Congress in July 1776. Among the aims of that declaration were indeed to transform British colonies into American states, but also to change rebels within the empire into belligerents outside it, 
thereby to render an imperial civil war into an international conflict between Britain and the United States, as Paine had urged. Transforming civil wars or rebellions within empires to legitimate conflicts outside them would, of course, be a problem faced by insurgents throughout the Americas in an age of imperial revolutions. Moving from internal to external conflicts shifted the source of relevant norms and sanctions from domestic law to the laws of war and the law of nations. Thus, to uh, move ahead into uh, the early 19th century for a moment, facing vice-regal charges of rebellion in New Spain in 1812, José María Cos uh, sought to transform a civil war, as he put it, a war between brothers and citizens, into a war of independence by asserting the legitimate equality of New Spain with uh, metropolitan Spain and by subjecting their contentions thereby to the laws of nations and of war. Likewise, a few years later, in Argentina in 1816, José de San Martín protested, quotes, that our enemies, and with good reason, treat us as insurgents while we declare ourselves vassals. You can be sure no one will aid us in such a situation, words which almost precisely echoed similar words uh, that Paine had put into common sense 40 years earlier. The logic of legitimacy and intervention that lay behind these declarations derived, I think, from the Swiss jurist Emma de Vattel's Droit des gens, probably the single most globally influential text of European political thought in the late 18th and early 19th centuries. Vattel had observed that, by his own time, custom gave the name of civil war to any conflict between members of the same political society. But he more exactly defined it as the occasion when, quotes, a party is formed in a state who no longer obey the sovereign and are possessed of sufficient strength to oppose him, or when, in a republic, the nation is divided into two opposite factions and both sides take up arms. Vattel was scrupulous in his text in warning external powers not to abuse this maxim and to make a handle of it to authorise odious machinations against the internal tranquillity of states. But Edmund Burke again was appealing to Vattel's arguments as early as 1791 for intervention into revolutionary France on the grounds that, quotes, in this state of things in France, that is, in the case of a divided kingdom there, by the law of nations, Great Britain, like every other power, is free to take any part she pleases in a civil war. For Burke, France was a divided nation in a state of civil war, indeed effectively two nations, and Britain, he argued, was free to judge which had justice on its side. Five years later, in 1796, he argued that the Jacobin proponents of popular sovereignty had turned against the rest of Europe, uh, creating an ensuing conflict that was, quote, in its spirit and for its objects, a civil war, and as such they pursued it, a war between the partisans of the ancient moral and political order of Europe against a sect of fanatical and ambitious atheists, which means to change them all. A European civil war, therefore, not just a French one, promoted by a revolutionary sect with allegedly universalist ambitions for their own armed doctrine, as he put it. Here, the community riven by civil strife was European civilization itself, a foreshadowing, perhaps, of later expansions of the idea of civil war to encompass ever larger conceptions of commonality and community, for example, by Carl Schmitt, Ernst Nolter, Hannah Arendt, and others in the 20th century. I won't pursue that trajectory further this evening, but Burke's categories can help us to see how another revolution, in this case the French Revolution, might be considered as part of an Atlantic age of civil wars perceived by contemporaries across the political spectrum. Indeed, the French Revolution, allegedly the first modern revolution, 
like the Amer American Revolution, is beginning to emerge in some strains of historiography as a civil war in multiple dimensions and not just, for example, in the Vendée, where we've long thought of it in those terms. For example, Michel Foucault had suggested as much in 1973 in his lectures at the Collège de France on the punitive society, where he discussed the most disparaged of all wars, not Hobbes, not Clausewitz, not the class struggle, but civil war. In the course of those lectures, he argued that there had been no transition, in fact, from alleged uh, early modern era of civil wars to a later age of modern revolutions, but that civil war persisted as a fundamental characteristic of what he was calling then already the disciplinary society. Three years later, in a, in a subsequent series of lectures, Society Must Be Defended, Foucault took that analysis one step further to portray the French Revolution as an internal struggle between social classes, an essentially civil struggle for control of the French state, albeit one fought, as he put it in rather peculiar terms, between different nations as part of uh, what he termed a race war that was also a civil war. The French Revolution, of course, was in many ways the political and social conflict that would do most to determine the script of revolution for the future. Yet we might also see it as the one that most amply confirmed Arno Meyer's famous suggestion that civil war is a common form of collective violence which fires the furies of revolution, all the more so if it should interlock with a quasi-religious foreign war, as in the case of the, Fr of the French Revolution. I think there's now considerable evidence from a range of revolutions, especially uh, in uh, the late 18th and early 19th centuries, that civil war can be a revealing analytical optic for evaluating the causes, the course, and the consequences of many other revolutions, and that it was also an actor's category during the American, French, and Spanish-American revolutionary period. Pache, the leading French revolutionary historian Pierre Serna, who's lately declared that, quotes, every revolution was a war of independence, we might say instead that every revolution, at least every Atlantic revolution, was a civil war. Now, this seemingly counter-revolutionary conflation of revolution, allegedly, again, liberatory, future-oriented, essentially fertile, with civil war supposedly atavistic, backward-looking, and inherently destructive, does in fact find support from some of history's greatest theories of revolution themselves. For example, in the Communist Manifesto, Marx and Engels noted that, quotes, in depicting the most general phases of the development of the proletariat, we trace the more or less veiled civil war raging within existing society up to the point where that war breaks out into open revolution. In similar terms, Lenin argued in 1917 that, quote, civil wars in every class society are the natural and under certain conditions inevitable continuation, development, and intensification of the class struggle. That's been confirmed by every great revolution. And looking back on the Russian Revolution a decade later, Stalin also agreed. The seizure of power by the proletariat in 1917, he stated, was a form of civil war. In light of these uh, uh, testimonies by revolutionaries themselves, we might at least speculate that civil war was in fact the genus of which revolution was only a late evolving species. What might be the benefits of rethinking the first age revolutions, global or otherwise, as an age of civil wars? I'd like briefly to suggest three such advantages in conclusion. The first is that it recovers an actor's category that allows us to see new commonalities among the various movements for political and social change around the Atlantic world of the late 18th and early 19th centuries in the terms that contemporaries themselves understood them. That category reminds us of the costs of these conflicts 
as well as the conceptions of community, authority and sovereignty that were at stake within each of them. It may also help us to reimagine standard narratives even of American history itself. For example, in comparative and hemispheric context, we can see that what we call the US Civil War was perhaps anomalous only for coming so late in a sequence of challenges to sovereignty, internal conflicts over state creation, and attempts at succession. Why indeed did it take North Americans so long to follow their Spanish-American brethren into vociferousness and the reorganization of their political communities? Why did it take almost a century, we might say, in fact, from the Stamp Act to Appomattox, uh, was exactly 100 years between 1765 to 1865? Why did it take a century rather than uh, just a few decades uh, as uh, uh, to follow on from the first uh, stirrings of inter-imperial discontent rather than taking 20 or 30 years to create uh, new uh, s- states and sub-states as, as happened in Spanish America, for instance. The second advantage uh, of this optic is that it can serve to bring together a variety of historiographies, for example, those on the American and French revolutions along with those on Spanish America, which until relatively recently have had too little to say to each other. As John has noted in uh, his most recent book, History in the Making, the promise of Atlantic history, at least as we all foresaw it a decade or so ago, uh, has not quite been fulfilled because, as he said, so much of Atlantic history so far written has tended to remain within the parameters of individual national Atlantics. An integrative approach to the Atlantic world, not just within the paradigm of an age of revolution, an age of democratic revolution perhaps, but also in the context of uh, an age of civil wars, uh, might also help us to adopt a hemispheric perspective as well as an Atlantic one. In this comparative light, we might see that the British Atlantic crisis of the 1770s and after foreshadowed elements of the even larger and more transformative crisis that engulfed the Iberian Atlantic after 1808. It contained repeated claims to local autonomy, a crisis of monarchy, rebellion, civil war, the redistribution of sovereignty, assertions of independence, and the emergence of a new civil society and political economy in the context of emergent statehood within a restructured international society within the Atlantic world. To be sure, of course, there were fundamental differences between the crisis of British America and the crisis of Iberian America, and not only in their timing 40 years apart. There was, of course, nothing equivalent in the British case to the shock of Napoleonic invasion. There was no change of monarchy and no fundamental reorganisation of the political constitution in the metropole. The British Empire did not dissolve as a result of the American crisis and became, indeed, more globally expansive than ever before. However, despite these crucial contrasts, it may be still instructive to consider the American Revolution not as an isolated process of little relevance causally or comparatively to the revolutions in Spanish and Portuguese America, but as their precursor and parallel in the Atlantic world. Thirdly, this change of vision from revolutions to civil wars or to see revolutions and civil wars as interacting with each other may help us to place the late 18th and early 19th centuries into a longer temporal perspective, both the one familiar contemporaries stretching back to the contentions of Republican Rome and one extending into our own age of revolutions and civil wars in the aftermath of the Occupy movement, the Arab Spring, and the abortive uprising in Ukraine, for example. Internal conflict, what we now technically call civil war, is now the most prevalent form of war around the world and indeed is likely to remain so for the foreseeable future. Looking back to earlier ages of civil wars, may therefore be as essential for our own self-understanding as turning to eras of revolution was for previous generations. Thank you very much.